out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastor, and as you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Faith Healers, because I recently spoke to the lead singer, Roxanne, very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that other stuff, and life in an indie pop band. Anyway, um, after some casual chat about this and that, I mean, mostly, if you're really interested, about lockdown and the fact that... um, This has been conducted at the beginning of that period when everyone was kind of going through their stuff and reminiscing, getting old posters out and flyers. We were talking about those early musical influences and this was Roxanne's reply. Over to you. Yeah, same same as you. I mean, I was born in the late 60s, 69. So um, I had definitely had all those influences as well that you just mentioned. and also because I grew up in, in uh, quite a working class Edinburgh household and big extended family, loads of cousins, um, we were all really close and singing and music was a really massive thing, you know, we all kind of sang together and everything and my mum and dad had really good taste in music, thankfully, you know, wow. so I grew up listening to the Beatles, the Stones, Johnny Cash, rock and roll, Elvis, Buddy Holly. You know, just like from the minute I was born, basically, there was always music in the house and we all watched Top of the Pops together. And, you know, any genre went really. It was, um, you know, it was, it was, and it, it, I've, I've remained kind of very open-minded and I'm not a music snob, you know. I think, you know, if, it, if, a, if there's a good sound to something or a good tune, you know, it doesn't matter yes. who it is or what it is. But um, I think definitely I was always a massive Bowie fan, you know, and I'm not just saying that. (laughs) (laughs) uh, You know, I went went to see Bowie in 82 on the Let's Dance tour. Oh, my God. Which one did you do? Because I went to Milton Keynes. Which one was yours? It was Edinburgh, Murrayfield. And it was the only Scottish gig that he did. And he came to Edinburgh, which was just unbelievable. And I was only 13. Yeah, um, and he played like it was like mad. He played on Tuesday, and uh, I had to, I had to skive the day off school to go and go and see him. Yeah, and my mum, who's very cool, wrote wrote and wrote me a note. This is important. And, uh, it was kind of yeah. weird because because it was a boiling hot day in Milton Keynes when I saw him in on eighty two, and I think they had the beat, and also men at work were supporting him that day. But it was so hot that by the time he came on, everyone was a bit. It was that kind of the Milton Keynes bowl where you just kind of. A heat wave all day that right. by the end you know you just wanted to go home at seven o'clock when he came on and it, or whatever you know it was hard going but you know it's still a very memorable experience yes yeah well we I think it rained <laughs> <laughs> in Scotland surprise surprise and it was um the Thompson twins and Ice House do you remember them yes classic yeah. smooth yeah so that yeah that's who we got um and then, um, yeah. I've, so, what I was mean, your first? What was your first single? When did you go? God, I've saved up one ninety nine. It's taking weeks. Uh, gonna... I honestly can't remember. I, I used to go, you know, like to Woolworths, like everybody else did, to buy their buy their singles. It was probably something like Duran Duran or Japan or ABC yeah. or something like that. You Classic. know, I was, I was into my kind of pop. Yeah. Pops then. 
And uh, although Japan were quite cool, they were pretty avant-garde, weren't they? Well, they turned in, they were more avant-garde and I took them, and same with Soft Cell, I sort of put them all together and went, yeah. ooh. And then it was like, actually, there's a lot more to them than possibly some of the other bands. But yeah, I think Japan were quite sophisticated pop, but it, there's just that image and the lady dye hair, which now I yeah. seem to have been modeling myself. But um, yeah, it, it was kind of like a David Sylvian has become this cool guy. And there was Mick Khan, who was very cool. And everybody was like, avant-garde. And they were genuinely avant-garde, weren't they, I think? Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, I think, I think I've got all the Japan albums in my collection on vinyl. And um, <laughs> of course, um, XTC were another amazing, uh, very sophisticated pop band. Yes. I, I really loved them. I remember hearing um, Sensi's work in overtime the first time on the radio. Thinking, wow, that's, that's really different. That's, you know, I remember that really standing out. Yeah. 11 year old years or however old I was. So, was that, so with, as the 80s were progressing then, because you obviously um, a few years younger, did you get into the sort of indie pop world a little bit as, as that progressed with like the, Smith, the Smiths and bands like that? Or was it still kind of the, the pop charts? And then as the 80s progressed, things started to change a bit more. No, well, what, what happened to me was um, I actually hated the Smiths. I really hated them. And uh, but I, I, that changed much later but at that point when when the smiths were big and around i uh, i couldn't stand <laughs> but i didn't understand it because i was really um when i was about 13 i started hanging out with um some friends who were really into into heavy metal and uh, <laughs> so i really got into uh, acdc led zeppelin black sabbath and marillion <laughs> who, yes, of course. Who are my dirty secret? Because they were, you know, the the singer Fish was from Edinburgh, and they, they yes. were like, like local heroes. Absolutely, yeah. It was kind of weird because I, I, I sort of was um, my my older brother, who was seven years older during the seventies. That was kind of his period of music, and he was into the prog world when he was doing his university thing. So it was yes, Genesis the work of Rick Wakeman and all that kind of malarkey. So when Marillion came along, I kind of had a guilty pleasure of, you know, I did enjoy that, the single, but I realized yeah. it was kind of soft prog, you know, it was kind of like prog rock by, you know, it wasn't the original prog rock. It was kind of like another band doing prog rock, if you know what I mean. It was kind of like, you kind of go, oh, this is nice, but they've just kind of been kind of ripped off another band, haven't they? I'll just go and listen to the original source. Which yes. is kind of the yeah. same with all music in a way, but I mean, I suppose, you know, I didn't quite get it. And, and funny enough, you know, I think his, the image of Marillion was just too much for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but since then, I did an interview with Fish a few years ago, and he was so nice. And, he, and he's, got yeah. a gar he's got a garden, poly polytunnel. He loves his, you know, he's such a genuinely beautiful man, isn't he? He's, and, and he's very cool politically, you know. He's, yeah. he's a very sound person. Absolutely. Um, I felt bad afterwards. I thought, God, I wish I liked you then. Yeah. I mean, it was, I remember, but, you know, like jumping ahead when I joined the Faith Healers, like Joe, Tom and Ben were always like, you can never mention Marillion when we get interviewed. That is just like, no, you are not allowed. Yeah, you've got to say Captain Beefheart, Velvet Underground. 
you know, Frank Zappa, for God's sake, don't say it. And, you know, David Bowie's low album. So, yeah, that's always true. Yeah, because my, my brother, apart from the prog, he loved, uh, he had the first Black Sabbath, well, had a Black Sabbath album and Deep Purple. And, you know, and I kind of again consumed them because I was young and thought, oh, my God, this sounds so amazing. You know, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath or, you know, Fireball by Deep Purple or, you know, you know, all those songs just sound so amazing, don't they, when you're young, you know. Oh, even God. even yeah. Richie Blackmore's Rainbow was just blew my yeah. mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was hard not to like, you know. That's where I learned to throw my hair around and, you know. Headbang. The headbanging thing. But, um, I mean, I also, also have to mention, I had, I had an older brother who's, um, he's like kind of four or five years older than me. And he, he, um, he had a brilliant record collection and he was, you know, in the seventies, late seventies, he got, he got into all the punk stuff and post-punk. So I had all that in my repertoire as well, you know, so I had, I had a really good mix of everything. Yes. Um, so yeah. you, you kind of missed that eight, early eighties period of the kind of the unemployed years of, um, yeah, because a lot of the indie bands, you know, they had, not all of them, but quite a lot had the kind of, oh God, no future kind of attitude and lots of unemployment. So we'll just go and sign on because that's what you do. And there was Job Seekers Allowance and Enterprise Land Schemes that gave people a, a year to be kind of self-employed and sort of claim various benefits. So it was like, be a musician, let's make a sound and make a record one day and John Peel might play it and you get the session and then that you know, it's like, bloody hell, we're suddenly on the John Peel show doing a session with Dale Griffith. So, you know, it was like that progression was, you know, and then, you know, you get random gigs because there was all the kind of network of little gigs around, you know, venues, weren't there? You know, little club indie alternative nights around yes. all, this, all yes. the towns and cities, which kind of created that network that gave people a chance to play all over the shop, really. So you kind of, you would have missed that. And I suppose when because I put indie pop down as, as the years of 83 to 87, which is the years of the Smiths. And there was something that kind of, then ecstasy appeared, didn't it? You know, it was like, duh, duh, duh. Yes. and yeah. the world of, you know, all that Stone Roses and um, Primal Scream and Soup Dragons, who've done the great crossover from indie to dance. Um, but then, so, so tell us how you're, you decided, actually, I might be in a band. Um. Yes. Oh, mustn't forget Orange Juice, of course. Great Scottish. Yes. Well, there was, yeah. there was, there was like the bands that everyone mentions is Orange Juice, the Smiths, the Go-Betweens, and the June Brides. Is like, yeah, these were the these were the bands. No one's most people have forgotten about June the June Brides, haven't they? No, yeah. yeah. And Go-Betweens, great, and Orange Juice, obviously, and the Smiths. We all have a tricky relationship with them now, don't we, for various reasons? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't see that one coming. Hmm. Yeah. But I mean, or, yeah, Orange Juice, I still listen to Orange Juice. I think they're fantastic. Yes. Yeah. But um, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I, I've completely forgotten what you just asked me. Yes. About the early years of, of. So were you in Edinburgh when the Faith Healer started? No, no, no. I, I moved down to London in 87. So that was kind of 18. As soon as I could leave home, I was just out the door. And uh, I um kind of spent about how long was I was kind of staying with friends and then I discovered Camden and uh this felt like where where I should be this felt like my kind of spiritual home so it, it wasn't a it wasn't a college university degree it was just literally I'm gonna go and find the my my you know London's gonna be lined with gold yeah I think I was just I was just desperate to get out and and see the world and explore um 
you know, I didn't, I didn't think I was moving to London to go and join a band. I just wanted to kind of do something exciting and not, not be living at home. Yeah. And I thought I'd maybe stay there a year and go, go back home and go to uni or college or something. Um, but I did go to uni much later, but um, yeah, I, I, I just, yeah, I, I just thought that, you know, as soon as I hit London, this was the most exciting place to be felt straight right at home and uh, I was working in the World's End pub in Camden I don't know if you know that um, it's very different now um, it was just like one room at the time and a couple of the, the barmen there were because we were all really into music and they were like you would really like the Falcon in Camden I don't know if you know about you must know about the Falcon. Yes. Yeah. and uh, you know you, sh you should come and work there and they had, uh, there, there was a guy called um, Jeff Barrett. Yes, the PR man. Yes, who went on to do Heavenly Records. And he ran, I think it was called the Phil Kaufman Appreciation Society or something. That was the name of his club and the back room of the Falcon. And um, he used to put on a lot of, you know, at that point, that would have been like 89, I think. Right. So there was still a quite quite a big kind of you know garage rock, you know sixties garage rock psychedelic, lots of kind of bowl haircuts, a la the birds, <laughs> white fringy jackets, Rickenbacker guitars, you know. Yeah. All that kind of. Because there was there was another venue in London at that time called the the Ambulance Station that seemed to sort of be an alternative kind of squatty scene that also put on bands including. Jesus and Mary Chain and they put on lots of other bits and they they were in a band quite a few of the members of that particular sort of scene were in a band called the Hangman's Beautiful Daughters. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know they they created that kind of slightly 60s psychedelic sound with you know um, yeah because Dan Tracy seemed to have been that person that a lot of people talk about in as, as that alternative you know, he was in the TV personalities, wasn't he? And and seemed to be a bit of a, yeah. a, a character who made things happen in a interesting and bizarre way. So yes, but then there was a lot of those Scott um, Australian bands came over, which was amazing too. In in the sort of for for a sort of being a event, a big adventure, sort of coming from Australia and coming to sort of Scotland in Lee, um, London to sort of further their musical development, which I, I still felt thought was you know incredibly adventurous when you're quite young and you're just thinking let's just go and do it in London really so there, there was a big squatting scene there as well wasn't there well god yeah absolutely and you know I mean that that's where the Falcon is where I met um the rest the faith healers they were the faith healers at the time the three-piece and just like you know every other kind of band in that area drank in there and everyone was squatting I ended up squatting with a band called Milk I don't know if you Mm. who are actually from Norwich um oh how exciting <laughs> I'm making my milk from Norwich oh. um, uh, yeah yeah they they were they ended up being quite quite a heavy trio but they were they were they were more kind of jingly jangly melodic at first and two of the members of Milk went on to be in the Rocking Birds I don't know if yes you know. we got the Rocking Birds because they got a bit country didn't they yes yeah with their slide guitar. 
that's right yes because because yeah. around that that time because apparently you know i mean in a simplistic way you had the indie pop world then you had oh dance then you had the grunge and then blah blah brit pop but then within that you still had all those other bands who were coming along like the sundays suddenly appeared at the time when it felt like the party was moving but then they did their thing and then you had the carter the unstoppable came along you know they'd been in various bands as well um phil king who was in lush was in lots of bands as well before that and including the incredible the hangman's uh, beautiful daughters and then you had my uh, my bloody valentine silverfish and obviously the faith healers were sort of in that kind of world as well weren't you yeah. Yeah, well, that yeah, that's that's very much uh, who we were kind of hanging out with, um, playing gigs with. You know, it was it was quite not you know incestuous isn't the right word, but it kind of you know paints a picture of you know we we all were kind of hanging out, partying together, living in squats together. You know, it was it was it was an amazing time actually. You know, looking back at it, yes, you know, well, the time when you're in it, you don't analyze it at all no because you know i suppose that's the thing when, when i was saying about the it takes a few decades to sort of to pass and then you look back and you think oh that was incredible because because you, you had the you had those gatekeepers back then as well which was quite handy you know you had john peel which a kind of a john peel play was just fantastic for various reasons including getting a gig sort of anywhere from you know glasgow leeds manchester norwich you know all over the place because someone was putting on an indie night or an alter, alternative night on a Wednesday night and people go yes and that's where when I first saw Silverfish was supporting my bloody Valentine or Nirvana was supporting Tad on that kind of first tour they ever did in 89 so there was kind of just like you know the, the, the wild club in Norwich you know on a Monday you know was just have three bands on you just go for two pound or three pound you'd just go and see them wouldn't you because it was just yeah. the thing yeah we, we would just blag our way in somehow you know <laughs> it was uh yeah, yeah. Quite so, did you, so did you audition for the Faith Healers? I did, I did. Um, I went round to, at that point, uh, they were rehearsing in Tom's parents' garage, so proper garage band at the time. And um, I think, oh no, it was just Tom. We first, we first went to see Tom. And uh, we just kind of jammed a bit together, he played guitar and I, I remember singing, I think we sang a few punk songs, sang Teenage Kicks and, um, oh, I can't remember, maybe some Ramones or something. And that went well, Tom gave me a tape, said learn these songs, you know, and then a few days later we all rehearsed together and that was it, it all clicked. So had you already, were you already a singer? Had you been singing at school and various, you know, you were confident with your voice? I think, I always loved singing, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I make no claims as, as to being a proper singer and I, I don't have a particularly great voice, but um, I found that, you know, I, I was quite confident getting up on stage and singing in, in front of people. And I think, you know, 90% of it is just, um, you know, having the bravado to yes. do that and, and entertain people, you know, and, and if you've got, if you can hold a tune, that's a, <laughs> that's a bonus. Um, but you know, um, yeah, it's it's funny. I just we, I, I would just be chatting to people at the bar, and and Tom had mentioned that they were looking for a singer, and I was like, oh, I quite fancy singing in a band, and he just said, come and have a go, you know. 
Blimey. Um, and they weren't they weren't on a label or anything. It was just literally sort of the very early days. That was I think they'd been going for about a year and they had a reputation for being the worst band in Camden. Um, I think. Um, yeah, I think I think people found Tom's singing quite <laughs> I think Tom's a brilliant singer. I love I love listening to him. But yeah, I think don't think people were quite quite ready for it. And then yeah, so I obviously brought a different element to it um, that was more palatable for people. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you so did you get quite a few support gigs at that stage? Did you start sort of managing to blag yourself onto sort of that kind of circuit. Yeah, well, I think our, our first gig was at the Dublin Castle in Camden, and um, I, I remember, like, pe people were like genuinely shocked and surprised because I think they thought, you know, I was this kind of very mild-mannered um, kind of hippie chick. I think people saw me as, you know, working behind the bar in the Falcon, and then, you know, here, here was this kind of screaming, banshee, flailing kind of banshee. <laughs> 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 on stage and I think people were genuinely gobsmacked was um, it kind of feel far was it one of those you know did, did your adrenaline just kick in you went jeezy queasy I've got to go for this I'm terrified no I never felt terrified no no not at all no I was just really really kind of consumed by the music I was really because it was so bloody loud I don't know did you ever See the faith healers. I like. didn't ever see that. I just, uh, you know, I, yeah. I, I saw silverfish a lot, but I, I didn't somehow see the faith healers. Right. Okay. Well, especially in the early days, I mean, I couldn't hear myself, so that's one of the reasons why I was, I was screaming so much because Tom, Tom, and Ben's guitars were so loud, just like you know. I mean, I, I do have, you know, hearing problems <laughs> because of that. Um, so yeah, and, and but it was really it was you know that the, there was a real kind of hypnotism to it all, um, you know, and and it it had a real groove behind it. Like Joe's drumming has just got this incredible groove. Yes. Um, you know, I, I just got really, really kind of enveloped in this like sonic maelstrom of of, of noise, and and yeah, I would just go a bit. You know, just really, really get um, taken away in the moment. Well, yeah. But then did you find that, you know, because there was a bit of a scene, wasn't there, with those, you know, bands that I've mentioned. And I, I remember seeing, you know, My Bloody Valentine a few times and Silverfish I saw quite a lot. And then you had kind of Lush, which were quite a little bit more of a kind of um, ethereal sign. But it was, and then, you know, big people like the Copto Twins, which is quite different. But did you, did that feel like you were part of a scene at that stage? Did you feel like, oh yeah, this is, you know, I feel a bit like a community and we're all sort of doing something quite exciting together? Yeah, definitely, definitely. We toured with Lush actually, but that was kind of probably our first big break, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, that was it, the, the, you know that this this was the day when you know those were the days when you know you got all your kind of music news and information from the Melody Maker and the Enemy and well, right. and um, you know they all used to have like these little columns. I can't remember which paper it was. It might have been the Melody Maker had one called the Scene That Celebrates Itself. <laughs> <laughs> it was always like every week there would be the Faith Healers, Lush, Silverfish, 
that it was always the same because we were always seen out together at gigs you know kind of blagging backstage to get free beer or whatever and um you know and then all the kind of gossipy little stories that went on with that well uh, right. That's yeah must, must have felt very exciting especially now you look back on it but then john peel really picked up on the band didn't he because you did a lot of john peel sessions five or six isn't it which is um, you know. yeah that i mean that was mind-blowing i mean that you know I, I mean i think it was our second ep a picture of health that um well he he he, all, he played our first ep uh pop song and and you know picked that up i can't remember if he offered us one just on the back of that or if it was the second one but um you know, you just felt like, oh, well, we've done it now. We've got, we've got a John Peel session. We don't need to do anything else. This is true. And can <laughs> you remember much about it? Because a lot of people, especially when they started, that first John Peel session can be a bit hit and miss. Because did you get Dale Griffith, who was your producer? Yeah. Oh, yes. No, that was that was a story. He yes. Was, <laughs> he was tricky. <laughs> My God, we were late for the session and we got such a bollocking from him. And uh, he was, because you, you get to do four tracks. Yeah. And uh, he was like, you know, you've got to drop one of your songs because you were late. So we only got to record three. <laughs> we weren't allowed to have any say on how, how it sounded, you know. So it doesn't, the first first one doesn't sound too great, I must <laughs> But did you also at the same time, because had you been in the studio before? Oh, yeah, you'd done your EP before then. Yes, yeah. So you'd, but were you, because I know that a few bands, you know, and, and, and I know we've already mentioned the Smiths, but that for their first album sounds really quite sort of thin. And re, and then their, that Hatful of Hollow album, which was a compilation of all their kind of BBC sessions, sounds amazing. So I just wondered if you were impressed with the production, even though Dale was a bit tricky. No, no, not at all. I think there, there was a... And I can't remember if it was our second or third session. Um, basically, we, we got treated very differently. I think we got him on, on the first three. And um, by that point, PJ Harvey had been signed to Too Pure, our record label. Um, you know, and everyone was, you know, in awe of PJ Harvey. Yes. So she did her first Peel session and wasn't happy with how it sounded. And uh, she got to go back and remix it because I think everyone just knew there was something really special about her, and they had had to had to um, you know toe the line a bit there. Yeah, absolutely. And then when we went in to do like very shortly after that, we went in to do I think it was our third session, and we got treated like royalty because <laughs> 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 we were on the same record label as PJ Harvey. Um, you know, they, they you know, were, were treading very lightly around us and they, they, we got to sit in and mix it with them and, you know, they asked us, are you sure you're happy about this? Nice. Uh, yeah, so. But and what was your, and that, what, I think, oh, sorry, I was going to say, what was your relationship like with Two Pure Records? Um, it, was, it was very good. I mean, um, they were our managers as well, which I don't know if that, that is in the band's best interest to have your, re your record label as, as your managers. <laughs> it might have been a better idea to have, have separate management on reflection. But, um, you know, the, they were, Paul Cox was uh, running a club called The Sausage Machine um, 
uh, in a pub called the White Hart um, in Hampstead. And him and him and Richard had decided to form this label. And uh, we, you know, we knew we were friends with Paul because we we played quite a few times at, at the White Horse and, and we knew them and all, all their kind of crowd. So um, it was very, you know, it was a very kind of um, friendly and um, what's the word, you know, a proper cottage industry, like, you know, yes. their friend Sean was doing the, you know, all the PR. I don't know if you know Sean Newsham. Um, no. no. Okay. He's, he's still doing, doing all that stuff. And um, yeah, yeah, it was, very, it was very close and tight knit. Yeah. It was a bit, yeah, a bit like being down the Falcon, I suppose. <laughs> yes, because I know people, there was Ouija records that a lot of people, well, yeah. a few people had, had signed for. So then the following year, you brought out your album. So did that, um, by then, you obviously in an in a incredible creative flow. Was, was that sort of a period that you sort of look back and think, wow, we were really sort of surfing the cultural zeitgeist here? Um... Oh gosh, I, I I don't know. I suppose like I, I say, when you're in it, you're not really analysing. I mean, it did things took off really fast. I mean, when when we recorded um, Lido, the first album, I mean that that really felt like we'd you know made a massive progress, a massive massive leap in our kind of. I don't know if people would laugh if I say musicianship or just, you know, it felt like we'd become a bit more sophisticated maybe in, in, our, in, in our understanding of who we were as a band and musically. And, um, you know, the, the reviews that it, that it received were, were quite, you know, uh, remarkably kind. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, on, and we got, you know, we ended up getting a, a, a license and deal to Electra in the States, you know, which was an amazing experience, you know, getting to go to the States and, um, you know, play to the American crowds and meet some of our idols and... Um, right. Yeah. How did yeah. you find your American experience? Fantastic. Oh, that's good. Because most yeah. people have, have often said, you know about sort of the, the, the narrative of the band, it's often when they mention going to America, they then follow it with, and then we broke up when we came home. So it was good that you had a good experience <laughs> instead of one yeah. of those. So what made your experience so much better than the 99% of the British bands? Well, for some reason, the Americans really liked us. I think in, in the UK, we were... Um, well, even though I said we had great reviews for Lido and everything, there was there was a... There was always an issue with, with I think, how, how journalists didn't really know what to do with us or how to categorise us because there was always, like we said, you know, there was lots of kind of categories. Yes. Band, either kind of shoegaze or you were... Oh, yeah, uh, that's right. And we also had, never, you know, we had Nevermind as well, which, you know, we were all still sort of very obsessed with the grunge scene, wasn't it? That hadn't slightly turned, you know, like yes. grubby or tedious. So I guess you were... Yeah, you, you weren't really shoegazing that kind of Galaxy 500 Sarah Records though, were you? No, not at all, not at all. And I get, I mean, it, it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because if, because you said that you haven't seen our live show, I think that would probably change how, how you listen yes. to or, or, or perceive the faith healers because, you know, I, I, I don't think we 
were able to capture what we did live, you know, and for me, I think the live experience was, was my preferred way of, of uh, presenting the music. Yes. And, you know, whereas some bands don't sound that great live, but they sound fantastic on record. Um, yeah. Then it, that, that all depends on. This is tricky, isn't it? So yeah, going back to your American experience, did you then, yeah. did you go for that long and did you sort of tour with other bands that gave it, because you said the Americans yeah. absolutely loved you. Yeah, well, the, the, first of all, that you know, when, when we first went out there, Lido was like number one in all the college radio charts, um, which we didn't really understand what that meant, you know, and I remember being interviewed about that and, I'm going, is that, is that good? And this guy going, yeah, it's fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it means all the students in America are listening to your record. You know, that's a huge market. And, uh, and then we did, we did CMJ, which was great fun. And then and we did a little tour up the East Coast with Stereolab and Moonshake, who right. were our label mates. And... Um, and then we went back again and did a tour with uh, the Breeders and John Spencer Blues Explosion. Oh my God, that's so cool. A, a phenomenal uh, two bands to be playing with. I mean, you know, fortunately we went on first, so <laughs> didn't, have to, didn't have to follow John Spencer Blues Explosion, obviously, because they were much, much bigger than us. And uh, that was quite quite mind-blowing experience and that that was like 94 I think and that that was the year that um Kurt Cobain killed himself he killed himself while we were on the road mm. and uh and the breeders were all they were all really good friends with Kurt Cobain so we had you know we had to cancel some of the gigs so they could go to the funeral really interesting cultural time you know and we'd we'd, we'd arrive at venues and all these kids would be crying and wanting to talk about you know, it's, it's, it's quite an, an, an amazing thing to live through. Yes, it is a bit of a strange one, isn't it? And did yeah. you, I mean, because, you know, with people like Bowie, he'd spent, and a lot of artists, they, they spend a lot of time sort of trying to get somewhere and, and not quite making it. I mean, Bowie spent most, a lot of the 60s, say half the 60s, going nowhere fast, making some weird folky little stuff, which were a little bit forgettable. And then he hits it, you know, in the seventies with the help of Angie and his manager DeFries and, and suddenly it kind of gets going. But your sort of musical kind of development was very quick, wasn't it? You weren't in lots of different bands, struggling and failing, struggling, and then going, oh, blimey, at last, you know, this is like the first band and it's doing really well. So how were you developing both as an artist and, you know, how was it affecting your personality? Um, God, that's a good question. Um, I'm sure it, it was, I mean, it was really, it was really quite tough being in a band, you know, especially if you're touring all the time. Um, you know, you really do start getting on each other's nerves and winding each other up. And, you know, it's really unhealthy lifestyle. It's, you know, a lot of drinking, um, no sleeping, um, nerves frayed um but you know the oh god how did it affect me um i don't know i need to think about that yeah because obviously leslie from silverfish i mean she 
she suddenly had to get a minder, didn't she, on stage, you know, because people started, you know, getting a bit odd, you know, like, you know, having that protection, things from being like, let's all be a bit sort of, you know, that kind of squat party, you know, everybody's, you know, a bit of anarchy here and there, and they think, actually, this is getting a bit weird, we better put some protection here, because it's, it's not too great that people are jumping on stage, I mean, Morrissey quite liked it, but, you know, that didn't, you know, but he's, you know, female's a bit different, I just wondered how you were feeling with that kind of attention, like, okay, a bit too close, personal space, you know, and all that kind of world. And yeah. People, and obviously, you're the singer, so everyone wants to speak to you, don't they, rather than, yeah. you know, the yeah. bass player. <laughs> so. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even I think, the yeah. Yeah. I think the boys in the band used to get a bit annoyed about that. Why does no one want to talk to us? Oh, no, that's not true. They did. But um, yeah, yeah. I think, oh, I mean, we, 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 we were pretty friendly and, and quite open to chatting to people. I don't think there was, there was really any issues. I mean, you'd occasionally get some you know there's always a few weirdos there was always someone who would you know come to too many gigs and always be a bit too familiar and and make you feel slightly uncomfortable <laughs> but um nothing that we couldn't handle you know um but yeah yeah i mean i still you know i still still to this day get loads of people messaging me on facebook and saying yeah. you know but, you know, with Kurt Cobain, I mean, he was like really struggled. And then obviously he said in that in his letter, you know, Freddie Mercury was just like, yeah, more of that, please. Give me a bigger crowd, more. You know, so it was kind of interesting how it affects different people. But, you know, obviously Bowie coped with it OK. But, you know, obviously it's kind of an odd thing, isn't it? At the same time, when, you know, when you see interviews with Kurt Cobain, you know, he never really, you know, he you could see he wasn't quite made for that world, was it? Like... Yeah. Right, the limo, you know, I'll, I'll now sort of accept my past and now I'm going to enjoy the limo, the lifestyle and everything, you know, he, you know, the drugs, the, everything, Yeah. you know, the relationship, you know, it was all like, Jesus Christ, you know, <laughs> when you look at it now, you think, blimey, you know, it's, it's not good, is it? Yeah, well, I guess it's a lot of pressure, isn't it, being a kind of spokesperson for, for a generation and uh, there's, and a lot of what you say gets misinterpreted as well. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it's it's quite quite hard to. Yeah. I mean, it, that, and everything just happened so fast. It was all quite unprecedented with Nirvana, wasn't it? Yeah. You went from Bleach and and Sub Pop in 1989. You know, because I remember John Peel playing the Sub Pop 100 compilation. That was when I was just like, fantastic. Oh look, Tad and Nirvana are playing at the Art Centre. Must go and see them. You know, and and it was like, you know, it was just like, oh blimey, you know, a year or two later, and they suddenly got this kind of wow, that's quite an amazing new sound. And everyone, yeah. you know, from going from the Art Centre with 200 people to suddenly like, wow, they're they're headlining Reading. You know, so it is quite a big one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they were, they were global after that. So how were you, and obviously the following year, 92, is when you bring out your second album, but you were also doing festivals at that stage. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, in 92, we played the NME stage at Glastonbury, which was the first year they, uh, the NME had a stage there. And uh, that was, yeah, that was when Lido came out. And um, John Peel was DJing and he played our, our um, Mother Sky cover version. I always remember that. And um, yeah, that that was 
like a, for me that was a dream come true I really wanted to play Glastonbury I think at the time Glastonbury was still it wasn't you know seen as a cool festival at that point I thought a lot of people saw it as this kind of like you know hippie kind of um you know that's that's where all the, the hippies go and dance naked and um, yes we, we, you know, because I used to sort of bizarrely get tickets to help work on the greenfield or the healing, healing area at Glastonbury, you know, and it was just like, it was a very alternative, alternative thing. And they were always trying to put a fence up, weren't they, which got knocked down sort of on the first day and suddenly all the travellers were there and all the convoy and it was still pretty manic and mad, wasn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. People sort of taking far too much acid, you know, and driving motorbikes <laughs> around the site. So it wasn't, you know, health and safety was completely out of the window, wasn't it, really? Yeah. Yeah, and, I, and remember, then, I think that year I remember that was that was um, the the first Glastonbury I've been to, but I really noticed a big change. You know, there, there was a lot of uh, how how shall I phrase it? You know, kind of undesirable kind of people selling drugs, and then there was like the the kind of techno tent was on like kind of till God knows what time in the morning, so you just couldn't sleep at all. <laughs> But, you know, it was amazing. The sun was shining. There's, I remember the NME stage that year. I think I think Primal Scream headlined the NME stage and uh, they did, you know, the whole of Scream Delica, which was the soundtrack of that summer. You know, yes. and it, it was amazing. It was, and I think it was also the year that Carter headlined the Pyramid stage was 92, which was like, wow. Okay, we toured with them as well. And... Um, and I think that must have blown their minds, going from sort of like this indie band in yes. North London to like headline Glastonbury. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But then I that mean, was, a, I was going to say that was also when, you know, people like In Spiral Carpets and The Orb yes. were huge, weren't they? Ecstasy was still really a thing. Yeah. Well, it still is actually. But yeah. yes. So then what happened? So then you have your follow up album, 93. Yes, imaginary friend, which uh, yeah, I think so. We yeah, we recorded that uh, at, at Blackstock Studios um, <clears throat> with a, a different. That's the thing of being on this kind of license to this major label. We uh, they kind of uh, made us drop our um, beloved. Uh, producer Ott who did Lido and you know get a I think we ended up using the, the producer that the breeders used on um, Last Splash um, you know and he was a lovely guy but um, I think I think for us it was maybe wasn't quite the sound but um, a lot of people say that's they prefer that to Lido I don't know it's yeah. there, there are some great songs on there. Can you remember a track called Harp Fog? which is quite an epic long song, isn't it? That's yeah. quite a different sound. How did yeah. that one come together? So um, that's actually, Tom Tom wrote that. Tom Tom is the main songwriter in The Faith Healers. I, would, I was the interpreter. <laughs> um, so that will have been about him being, you know, bamboozled in one of his relationships. Um, and uh, yeah, but it's a beautiful song. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I guess it's got that, it's kind of got that um, Pixies breeder dynamic in it. Um, this is quite uh, a short album, isn't it? 
is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of it's got seven. Well, I think it's the first one. Though. It's got seven tracks. It's just granted one of them is everything all at once that goes on for twenty minutes, which is quite epic. Yeah. 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 yeah songs so we just made that really long yeah <laughs> so so, but, so, so how come it was quite well, we short... did solo songs we just stretched them out because we didn't have enough songs to you know especially in america they want you to play for ages yeah so make that song an extra five minutes <laughs> <laughs> but that's the great thing about faith in the songs they can just go on and on most but did you feel that, um, yes, when you were recording it, did it feel quite hard work? I think that album, by that point, we were uh, not getting on quite so well as a band. There was a bit more tension. And, uh, you know, we split up not long after that, to be honest. I think, I think we did, oh no, maybe like a year later. We split up in 94, didn't we? But I think that was kind of the beginning. The cracks were beginning to show. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> um, I, you know, again, it's so long ago. I can't, I can't remember why. You know, just, just you know, when when you first start a band, the first year or two, you're all completely in love with each other, and you know, you, you're this big happy family. You're like a gang. Yeah. Uh, you can't do any wrong, and and uh, everything you do is brilliant. Um, and then you know, after a while, you maybe start kind of finding the, the faults with each other and because um, most bands have a five-year narrative which I've found sometimes four but you know they you know that getting together you know John Peel you know lots of intermittent touring and then you know the first album a bit more of a solid tour and then the second album but then sometimes towards that kind of five years there's a sort of a questions you're not horrendous questions but you know sometimes a lot of people think god there's a kind of a a lack of money, you know, I'm still completely broke after five years. I haven't really slept properly. I don't really know what's going on. And yeah. and it's not much kind of like, I could do all this if, if I just got sort of a wad of money at this stage, but I'm, <laughs> most people can guess not at the moment. So I just wondered if you were also feeling like this is kind of getting to be hard work, but with very little return. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely, definitely. I think that's, yeah, pretty much the, the narrative most bands in that kind of financial position i mean we i think we probably we probably would have would have uh been free to do i think i think electra were quite happy with us to keep keep making albums but um i think yeah we were just just we'd just run out of the creative juices to yes. keep it going um you know there was there was uh, there was no joy left in it. And I think if you, yeah, when you lose that pleasure and joy in, in making music, there's not that, oh, I don't see any point in. Yes. And uh, Marie Kondo, who's that woman who does all that stuff about chucking stuff out, she said, if something doesn't spark joy, just you've got to get rid of it, take it to a charity shop. I suppose the same happens with a band, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, so did you, did you all sort of sit down one day and think, let's, can we just, Stop this now, or did you all stop? Just did you not, not turn up to a gig? I remember exactly when it happened. <laughs> we'd, we'd just come back from touring with the Breeders and John Spencer, and uh, you know had a really good tour, but we were 
We'd been all around the States. We were bloody knackered, you know, needed a rest. But um, two pure were like, no, no, you've got, you've got to go straight off to Europe and, and tour around Europe. And um, uh, we went, sorry, I just dropped something. And uh, they sent us off to Germany um, to tour with some band who, who were really big there. Um, um, and, and we were kind of not that popular. And we were going down like a lead balloon. <laughs> every night it was really demoralizing you know we'd come off this like amazing high from like touring in the states um but completely exhausted and then just being kind of like not quite booed off stage but not far off it you know and um i think i think we just all agreed at the end of that tour that that we were done and uh that was it It was just really sad actually yes on it. it was a really, really terrible way to to end it all i think if we just just had a rest for a couple of weeks and then been able to go on tour things might have turned out differently maybe not but um yeah. well a lot of people do say i just wish we'd had a break you know just gave it a yeah. break and and just kind of did something for six months or 12 months even and not worry about like god you know have we missed it all will will everyone have moved on because everyone does move on you know the, the music fan keeps on wanting the next thing and it's like you just have to take that as a sort of, well, we'll just have to see in 12 months' time. Because I did an interview with a guy from Censor. He said, he said they had a terrible experience touring with our band. He, they toured with Moby in America. And, and yeah. like, they just didn't get Censor. The fans who came to see Moby did not want to see Censor. And it was like, it was terrible, he said. It was just not good. You know, it was all, you know, thousands, massive, just were like you know, just not wanting to see a band. And he said, you know, you can't, you know, you just every night, it's a horrendous experience. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's how we felt. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, fortunately, our, our American experience wasn't like that. Yes. So when you walked away, you know, from that, did you just think that was it with the music world? I'm going to go and find, did you go to university after that? That's right. Yeah, I did. I mean, that was kind of, so 94, 95, uh, I went to North London Uni, University of North London to do women's studies and classical civilization. Um, very bizarre degree, but that's what you could do in those days. And you could still get a student grant and your tuition fees paid. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that was just, that was phasing out at that stage, wasn't it? It was that kind of... Yeah, that's right. You were probably the last year who ever got your tuition fees paid. Quite possibly, yeah. And then it was the, the grant was getting docked every year. Yeah. So I was, you know, working part-time in a bookshop as well. And then I did an MA after I went to Goldsmiths and did an MA in cultural history. Um and yeah so yeah i got my studying i think that was that for me that was the best way to do it that, yes. that way um because i think if i'd gone to university first i don't i'd probably well, who knows if i would have ended up in a band but um i think I, I was just very lucky to be in the right place at the right time and just you know that that was kind of it was almost like the the last golden age of the music scene, I think. Yeah. You know, um, for, well, I mean, you got that, I hate this uh, musical 
term and genre, Britpop, you know, that was kind of what people say is the last. The last. The great. Thing, but you know, Hurrah. Like, but look, you do, one of those, you do one of those things which seems quite, um, sometimes is tricky. You did a reunion, didn't you, in 2006? We did. We did a few reunions. With so that was for ATP. Yes. The breeders, yeah, the breeders at Minehead. So basically, um, oh God, who's it? Barry, the guy that, that, that ran it, um, asked Kim Deal, you know, what, what bands would you like to, to come and play? And she was like, oh, I don't know. And he's like, well, who, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure a band would reform for you if, if you asked them. And she was like, oh, well, you know, I, I really like the Faith Healers. And uh, Barry rang us up. He's like, would you do it? And we were like, how can you, how can you refuse Kim Deal? You know, yes. I mean, it would feel like you were going to be off her Christmas card list if you didn't. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that was fantastic. Unfortunately, Joe uh, Dilworth couldn't do that one. So we ended up recruiting... Um, do you know a band called Part Chimp? No. No. Uh, Ligament? Did you, were you familiar with Ligament? No? No, not really. Check, check, um, check them out. Their, their, their drummer, John, um, uh, stood in for Joe, that one. So it's a shame Joe couldn't do that. But then we did, on the back of that, we did uh, My Bloody Valentine ATP, um, which was a year or two later, I think. Maybe. Oh yes, you're right. It was. So yeah. you did. You did a reunion for your John Peel sessions in '06. Then a couple of um, ATP. Oh right, yeah. Sorry, the first one was for the uh, release of the John Peel sessions on Bada Bing Records. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Did that feel quite nice coming back together again and saying, "Gosh, what have you?" It all did. Yeah, I, I was. I was really up for it. Um, me and Joe were, were, were very happy to do it. Tom and Ben were dragging their feet a little bit, but once, once we kind of persuaded them, they, 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 they enjoyed it. Um, it was great to go back to the States and see, you know, because we, we kept in touch with all those people, you know, made some great friends out there. Yes. They kind of re, be reunited and... Uh, yeah, and then and all the, all the, and it was great because a, a lot of a lot of new people, you know, young younger kids came to the shows as well. Um, well it's interesting because there is this, you know, I've noticed that it, a passing of time and you know, 25, 20, 25, 30 years seems to be enough time for things to get slightly reevaluated. Because there was a couple of last year, I think there was two books on sort of fanzines of the sort of late seventies and the. 80s indie scene and I'm sure they no one would have cared about them until like a passing of time and then suddenly it's like oh they're really interesting you know archives and you know lecturers have sort of written books about them and then you know Cherry Red Records seems to always be bringing out these kind of compilations at the moment and they did C86 and then they went up to C90 you know they did each year and um, and I'm sure they'll keep going because you know there's there's all these songs and, and bands that I think we take for granted when they're happening and then later on you think actually this is, sounds much better than I remember you know yes because <laughs> <laughs> you take it for granted don't you you just think oh yeah there's these bands they're happening you know like my bloody Valentine. no one really thought much about it I don't think at the time and then suddenly you think oh that's that's an incredible album Loveless isn't it and then you know even Silverfish, I think, have got some reissues coming out some sometime. And then, you know, your music is available on Spotify and you can, you know, you know, a lot of people are listening to it. And I think people love to re you know, discover or rediscover kind of music again, even if it is kind of from the past. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so, so when you, yeah, so, so with your reunions, because I have one or two people have had bad experiences, but yours has all been fine. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, the, the, um, yeah, the American tour, that was great. Um, I'm just trying to think uh, if there's any standout kind of good or bad stories. Uh, oh, we went, yeah, we played, we played South by Southwest at that one. That was, that was great. We played in this old Art Deco cinema. Um, yeah, really, like, again, you know, just, just really uh, um, very, quite you really mixed age you know lots of people who were there the first time round, and then then lots lots of young kids just checking us out or you know maybe just wondered what it was like you know who the, who were this band or you know they'd maybe heard about us before um uh, okay sorry <laughs> So when, when, when you had your, you know, after that last one in 09, have you just kind of uh, pursued a creative career in other things? Yeah. Um, I, when, when I finished my MA, um, I was considering doing a PhD and then I decided I'd had enough of academia and uh, I was unemployed for a little while and, uh, went to the job center and found a job looking for uh, historical map researchers at the British Library at the job center and I was like this, is, this doesn't seem real you know so I went up and I was just like I'm interested in this job and uh, they got me an interview and uh, I ended up becoming a historical map researcher <laughs> freelance I wasn't employed by the British Library I was employed by somebody else but um that was a fantastic job. I absolutely loved that. God, that I would still be. Do, I still do a little bit of freelance historical map research, but most most maps have been digitised now online. Yeah. Uh, but there, there are a few that clients can't get hold of, or they're too expensive. So I actually physically go into archives and libraries, and obviously can't at the moment because they're all shut. Um, yeah. So I don't know when or if that job will uh, will resurface again but that's a sideline I also sell secondhand books I used to have a secondhand book business called Renegade Books and that went bust um because of the Kindle but then you know the like you know this what happened with vinyl when vinyl there was a huge resurgence and people wanted to buy vinyl the same thing has happened with books people want to buy books again yeah no one talks about Kindle do they anymore no it just yeah. seems like it's not the real thing, is it? No. So, yeah. And then I also, I, I run a, an artist's uh, warehouse. I've got like 11 studios and a big workshop. Um, so that's my bread and butter is the, uh, you know, being a studio Excellent. manager. Um, but it's great. You know, it's an amazing community of artists and musicians, you know. So I'm, I'm still in touch with that world. Like one, one of the... Um, members of Milk has a studio here, uh, Chin Keeler, who's an artist. He was also in Quick Space. Right. It's Tom's band that he went on to do. And uh, Nick Powell, who's in a band called Oscar. Um, there's a few other musicians. But, I mean, like, like all artists, they're, they're usually kind of, you know, they've got multi-creative 
talents good at everything yes absolutely you have to be don't you so look what would you i mean because you've you know been in the music world and creative world what if you could say something to an 18 year old self what what would you sort of whisper in their ear even if they might ignore it that you've kind of learned through years of experience and wisdom um oh yes i mean god yeah definitely do a lot of things differently if i <laughs> if i knew then what i knew now um i mean obviously be a bit more savvy financially and um you know looking back i mean at 18 i was incredibly naive for me it was it was all about having fun and um you know i didn't really work hard enough at um doing you know make being creative in the in the sense of of you know at song craft and songwriting um it's just partying too much and drinking too much and um you know just, just being a bit more um aware of what's what's happening you know contract wise financially you know having you know just just a bit more uh you know just all the grown-up boring things that you don't have no interest in at that age um but like most musicians you know we all got burnt so with with the with the world of contracts, is it this case that you sort of think, well, that doesn't matter because we, you know, it's probably not going to happen or it's not going to be that big a deal, and then afterwards you think, she, it was, you know, we could have done a bit better than that. Yeah, well, I think at that age as well, you're def- you're definitely living in the moment. You're not thinking. Well, well I was anyway. I mean, I I, I never thought long term. Um, and um, you know. What, I mean, why would you though? You know, it's you. You, you just. It would just, yeah. I mean, if, if you're if you're kind of caught up, thinking about those things, oh, I don't know. I don't yes. know. I think I think some people probably you know, I don't know. Probably the members of, of the police were very good at sort of looking at the contract, or you know, the U two got a good manager and they they looked at the contract well, didn't they? But most people don't you know i mean the smiths didn't get it right and most bands don't really get it right do they no no not from what here although i i think people it's changed hasn't it i think that the whole the whole landscape has changed for bands you know it's it's a different world now i think people are are, are a bit more savvy and it just it all works differently now doesn't it i mean the, you know. i think it's quite a mystery now though isn't it so did you know with your two albums how did you know how what the sort of how did they sell lido and imaginary friend um you went into a record shop and you said can i have a copy of lido please <laughs> no i just wondered, I wondered how many copies you sold of it. <laughs> i know i'm just being a smart ass um, <laughs> oh god i don't know see that's the thing i don't pay any attention to things like that yes I honestly don't have a clue. Yeah. <laughs> but somebody was saying, I think I saw a, a thing on Facebook or, you know, social media somewhere the other day that, you know, the amount of records that we were selling then compared to what 
bands sell now you know we would all, all have been in the charts and on top of the pops yes this is very true i mean you know yeah. the indie charts probably sold i know the smiths numbers were quite phenomenal but compared to duran duran they were probably still quite small but compared to now they're like wow you'd be number one yeah you yeah. know the copto twins all those kind of weird and quirky bands would have been incredible so um yeah i mean i don't think you know we didn't sell huge huge amounts no. Especially not in the UK. I think we we sold more in the states than than we did here. But um, as to what those numbers are, I haven't got a clue. I could find out if you really want to know. No, I'm just kind of curious because because <laughs> it's kind of you know one of those things. You know, I always got a hundred thousand in my mind, but it might be just a wild estimate. Really, I don't know. It was back Where, in those days when people sold a lot of records. Where that it? number from? Pardon. Did you see that number somewhere? No, I think I've just made it up, actually. Made it up. Sounds think, good, that's a good sounding number. It's a good sounding number, isn't it? Perhaps it's the combined sales. But then, you know, did you know how many of your John Peel sessions sold? No. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But, I've still got uh, of them, actually. You have you? Yeah. Oh, good. Excellent. That's good. Well, look, thank you. Well, look, this is great. We managed to get it. And I saw your cat, which is even better. Well, did you see the cat? Yeah, just walked straight across. Yeah, the ginger yeah. one. Sorry, I hope I hope that was. Um, I feel like I've been a bit incoherent and rambling. No, it was fantastic. I tell you, and you know, it will it will it will sound brilliant. It will be good, and people will love it, especially in America, which will even be better. But look, I hope it all goes well, and I hope you get through this year, as we all do, slightly with the sanity, because it's a bit tricky, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We ma we managed to secure some funding, actually. I think I mentioned to you that. Oh, you said you were looking for funding and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because we haven't been eligible for any of the government funding or grants, and it's been well. As you might have noticed, all the kind of arts and cultural venues are just really struggling. They're not getting any help at all. Um, so yeah, yeah, we managed to get get some funding. Um, yeah. Well, it's kind of scary because it was it was last week where suddenly like the Theatre Royal in Norwich, which, you know, I mean, it's very main, mainstream, really, and the people who go to it. But it's like, oh my God, you know, they, they'll have been left to literally go bust, you know, and, and it's not an alternative venue like the Arts Centre or a place that just puts gig on. This is like the Theatre Royal, you know, and it's like, they're just like, well, you know, it's going to fold, you know, and, and then I was, you know, I, don't, I'm, I'm, I was often listen to the, the Witness podcast, which is on the World Service, and they had one on, I suppose it was kind of the Nazis and sort of stolen paintings. I was just thinking about the fact that this government seems to be letting the cultural landscape of the country completely go downhill, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And then you think, well, perhaps they actually have had this plan for a long time. They're thinking, brilliant, we can do it. We can just completely wipe the arts out. And I'm thinking, and I was listening to this podcasting, God, that's what the Nazis did. Jesus, this is yeah. incredible, you know, because it's like, we're just not going to save you. It's like, fuck, you know. It's, a, it's crazy because it's a huge part of the economy. And it's, yeah, it was like bank, it was like banking, finance, entertainment, wasn't it? Arts, you know, yeah. the, the UK's big thing, you know, export, whatever, creating yeah. something. The banking, you know, went arse up 10 years ago. And the arts were like, well done, you're doing well, so brilliant, such a small country. And suddenly it's like, oh, fuck them. <laughs> just let it all go, you know, not just venues, all the artists. It's like, you bastards. So look, on that exciting note. Yeah, so what, can I just, because I always love looking at these things. What's your, you know, the collective art studio you've got in London? 
it's called Praxis N16, P-R-A-X-I-S, N for North. 16. Oh, that's always good. Yeah, I had some friends in South London who had some sort of kind of artist warehouse, but it was an old hospital, which I think they had to give it back. Anyway, it's all good. Yeah. So and yeah, but when, when's this going to be? Well, hopefully in a couple of weeks' time. Okay, so and I can send I, I can send you a link and then you can go. Yes. Brilliant, and people yeah. will go. Wow. So it's a, it's a weekly show, is it? Yes, it's a weekly yeah. show. You know the yeah. C86 show. So um, and if there's any bands you've ever wanted to sort of um hear be interviewed, I don't know. I haven't done everyone, but I've done quite a lot. Yeah. There you go. It's good. Yeah. Well, I look. Haven't, I haven't told you all the bands. I've got a huge list. Look. Shall I email them to you? All the bands that you've been in? Well, no, no, they're just the, from that time, from the late 80s, early 90s. Oh, who else? Part of the scene. You want, shall I quickly yeah. go through it? Okay. So there was, um, so I've got Milk, Silverfish, Rockin' Birds, we mentioned that, the Charity uh, charity Case, who became Minxus. Yeah. Your loop. Oh, yeah. Yes, no loop. And they were... John Wills, the drummer from Loop, did our sound for a while. And that's why we ended up covering Mother Sky, because Loop did a version of, of, cover, uh, of Mother Sky. Yes. And, and John Wills, he was married to the bass player in a band called Sun Carriage. Mm. They're definitely a band you should listen to. They, they only ever did two EPs, but they were fucking phenomenal. Oh. Yeah. And um, the God Machine, they were part of the, the scene. Um, American, three American guys that came over. So uh, Clawfist, there was Gallon Drunk. They, they were oh, yes. part of the scene as well. And Mambo Taxi. Never heard of them. They were, they were an old girl band. They were great, actually. And that some of them went on to do the Voodoo Queens. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And then Breed, who were a very underrated band, actually, Breed. Um, they were all on Clawfist. And, uh, oh, yeah, and then there was, uh, there was a really good kind of um, couple of garage bands, that kind of, you know, Stooges type thing, Nutmeg and the Hypnotics. Oh yes, um, hypnotics. Yeah, the hypnotics was uh, Jim Jones. Jim Jones, God, he's been in a million bands. And then you also had Swerve Driver. Yeah. And Head Cleaner. I've never heard of Head Cleaner. Pretty heavy. Yes. Yeah. So what? So, so what happened? I know uh, Leslie from Silverfish is still doing bits. Did you ever know what happened to the other of Silverfish? Yeah, well, Chris, actually, he's he lives just down the road from me. I see him quite a lot. Excellent. Yeah. Um, he's doing bands. I can't, he was in a band called, I think he's usually in about two or three bands, actually. I can never keep up. Um, he was in the Lamp of Gullivers, but they've, they've, they've stopped, I think. Um, I think he actually might be in a band with Fuzz again. I think right. they're right. together again. I'll find out. I'll let you know. Um, and yeah, Les Leslie's back up in Scotland. Doing, she's. I think she's got a record coming out 
Yeah, looks. Uh, yeah, Ruby. Yeah, and what about Stuart on the drums? Stuart is, um, yeah, I saw him about a year ago. Um, I don't think he's playing drums anymore. Um, he's doing, um, he does uh, metal work, which uh, kind of kind, kind of suits. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You used to, do you remember you used to have a, a fire extinguisher? Fire extinguisher, yes. Because I got this book the other week and interviewed the guy, Lost Music of Venues of London. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I in... see, I've seen that, but not inside it yet. Yes, it's yeah, all there. Good... Yeah, it is good. You go, blimey, the George Roby. George Roby, yeah, is no more. It's flats now. Is it? Yeah. Are you the? Are you on that uh, George Roby Facebook page where they just some? They've got some really good photographs. Oh right, no, no, not. We oh. we played a few gigs there. They are stunning. Someone took some really good pictures during the nineties because there aren't that from the eighties. There's very few photographs, and when they are, they're like mm, fuzzy. But these ones are really good. So you should become a friend of the George Roby, oh, just okay. so you because yeah, it's kind of got the nineties, the nineties well and truly sorted, and uh, it's just another time, isn't it? It was always a terrible place to play. <laughs> well, no, they, they've just, um, they never promoted the gigs. They, um, they never paid you. Um, it was, it was just always badly organized. But I remember we used to go to uh, the club dog nights there were always good. Right. And that was like, that was like, there was this like kind of time in the like late eighties and early nineties where, no, it would have been late eighties really, where, you know, it, at clubs, you would just hear all the different types of music. There would be punk, there'd be alternative, there'd be a bit of reggae, a bit of this, a bit of that. It was a real mix of people. And it started to become a lot more kind of tribalised and cut off, I think, especially with the E kind of... Yes. No rave scene, that really kind of split everything. Everything, you know. But before that, everything, you know, clubs used to be a lot more... Yeah. Uh, They'd always play Madonna's Into the Groove, wouldn't they? Which was so good. <laughs> just to break it up yeah, yeah. possibly <laughs> <laughs> and that really is going to be the end of the interview well it goes on for a few more minutes but it's just it's just chat anyway a big thank you to Roxanne for giving me the uh, yes time for that interview a huge thank you and this has been David Eastall the C86 show yes from the uh, the faith healers just in case you're wondering still um you can find uh, you can contact me on uh, facebook twitter instagram just do at c86 show also these have all been archived on spotify itunes podbean check them out anyway have a great week <laughs>